Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Galatians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul here appears very much like a good dad. A good dad can be firm. A good dad can be angry. A good dad can raise his voice and use strong language when serious issues are at stake. But a good dad always loves, always gathers in, never pushes away, and never finally condemns. God is that kind of dad to those who are his through faith in Jesus Christ. He disciplines every child whom he receives. Hebrews 12.6 tells us that. But he is also always eager to gather in, always seeking restoration, always dealing out of love, and never finally condemning those who are his. Thanks be to God. That's who God is as our Father. And that's who the Apostle Paul is in this letter. He has spoken in very strong language. He has raised his voice, and he has applied a polemical bare-bum spank upon those who are disturbing the gospel progress of these churches in Galatia. But now, having done so, having delivered strong and appropriate correction, he turns himself to the task of gathering in. And if you're going to do this, brothers and sisters, if you're going to address error and engage in polemics, then this is how it has to be done. John Calvin, himself no stranger to strong words, says here, No man is prepared for chastising a brother till he has succeeded in acquiring a gentle spirit. If you don't have the heart of a father, then you have no business spanking the people of God. Okay, that's a good word right there for pastors and probably for parents too. So hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. R. Allen Cole says here, Paul is now turning to the question of how the church should deal with the repentant Judaizer, actual or imagined. Isn't that amazing? Despite how strong Paul has been speaking, despite how devastatingly he dismantled the arguments of the Judaizers, his intention was never to destroy that person or that group of people, but rather to restore. And so now, having made his point, having shown the error, he speaks to the process of gathering in. Now, of course, many scholars see here a parallel to the situation in Corinth. Paul had an opponent or opponents there as well. And he spoke very firmly, not just to defend himself, but to defend the apostolic gospel. But then once all of that was done, his attention immediately turned towards restoration. In 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 to 11, Paul says, Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. 
For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. If a brother sins or strays from the truth of the gospel, yes, address it, yes, correct it, yes, apply appropriate discipline if required, but then please immediately move towards the process of restoration and rehabilitation. Comfort him lest he be overwhelmed. We are not in the destroying people business, though we are in the preserving truth business. And if you think that you have to destroy people in order to preserve truth, then you don't understand the Apostle Paul. And and don't think that you can recruit the fiery reformers to defend your cause. Calvin says here, injury is frequently done by unseasonable and excessive severity, which, under the plausible name of zeal, springs in many instances from pride, and from dislike and contempt of the brethren. Most men seize on the faults of brethren as an occasion of insulting them and of using reproachful and cruel language. But while we must not shrink from a faithful testimony against sin, neither must we omit to mix oil with the vinegar. We are here taught to correct the faults of brethren in a mild manner, and to consider no rebukes as partaking of religious and Christian character which do not breathe the spirit of meekness. Closed quote. That's John Calvin speaking, right? And, and that's the balance we have to strive for. Yes, we must address error, of course, but let us do it in a spirit of fatherly meekness lest we fall victim to the enemy's designs against us. The enemy wants us to bite and devour each other and so to destroy ourselves. Rather, let us each examine ourselves. And only then let the spiritual, let the mature among us engage in the business of confronting error and restoring the wayward. And let even those people engage in that ministry with fear and trembling, lest they also fall into temptation. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here we are reminded that the law of Christ is the law of love. What did Jesus tell you to do? Police each other, taser each other, or love each other? Now, you, you may have to police each other from time to time. Let there be structures and a process for doing that strange work. But let not that strange work be thought to be the law of Christ. For the Lord was very clear in saying to his disciples, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Paul here explains that loving one another cannot be mere sentiment. It must express itself in bearing one another's burdens. It means taking responsibility for your brother's needs and challenges. Verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Luther says here, Here again, 
He represents the authors of sex and paints them out in their right colors. So Luther says, beware of people who are constantly dividing the church, making sex, X-S-E-C-T-S. Make sure that you are not a person who is constantly dividing the church into smaller and smaller factions. Do you think that you are the judge? You are not. Just pay attention to your own work and give proper attention to your burden and responsibility. And be eager to share with others. We see that in verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Scholars sometimes refer to this as a bridge verse, meaning it serves to close off one unit of thought and to introduce another. Paul is saying to the dividers and judgers out there, knock it off and get back to your primary responsibilities, which include loving one another and taking responsibility for the needs of one another. And towards that end, he says, make sure that you are taking responsibility for the needs of those who labor in the gospel. Make sure that you are attending to the needs of your local minister. Tim Keller says here, just as teachers share the spiritual gifts God has given them with the learner, so the learners share the financial gifts God has given them with the teacher. Closed quote. This is how the church gets strong, Paul says, by everyone sharing around the gifts that they have out of love and concern for one another. Teachers need to use their gifts to build up others in their most holy faith. Those others must then use their gifts to support and provide for the teachers. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Paul seems to be saying here that if you invest lightly in the teaching ministry of your church, then don't be surprised if you profit lightly from the teaching ministry of your church. If you invest all your money in your flesh, giving yourself everything you want, well, then you'll be rich in fleshly, perishable things. But if you invest in spiritual things, then of course you'll be rich in spiritual blessings. It's not rocket science. It is kingdom economics 101. Now, Paul begins to speak more broadly. He says in verse 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, if verses 6 to 8 were directed primarily at the need to have fellowship in the needs of those who are teaching the Word of God, here in verses 9 to 10, the lens widens out. And now the focus is on doing good to all people, particularly the people of God. I think that's important for us to see here. Charity needs to be deepest inside the church. You should never apologize for prioritizing the care of the saints. The church needs to look like a city on a hill. It needs to look like an outpost of a much better and much kinder world. So make sure that it does. If the widows in your church are just as lonely and just as desperate as the widows in the world, how is that helpful? How does that commend the gospel of Jesus Christ? Caring for your people is evangelism. Pastoral visitation to seniors in nursing homes and to the sick in hospitals 
is evangelism. Your church, my church, is supposed to be an embassy of the coming kingdom of God. It is supposed to look like the way the world was meant to be. People of all ages, all races, sitting side by side as brothers and sisters in Christ, caring for one another, the poor being cared for, the old being visited, the young being taught, the weak being carried. When they see that, they will know that the Lord is in our midst. Build a better world inside your church. Shine your light. Be the fragrance of life among those who are perishing. Love everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. Verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. The letter is basically over now, and so Paul adds a mark of authentication. Because of the expense associated with writing materials in those days, Paul would have hired a professional scribe to write his letters. A trained scribe knew how to write neatly and cleanly in very small letters, thus making good use of expensive writing materials. But here at the end, Paul signs his own name in very large unprofessional letters. Now, some also see here an indication that perhaps Paul had very bad eyesight, and that may be so. Combined with what Paul already said in chapter 4, verse 15, there's a pretty strong argument to be made for that point of view. But scholars also point out that even if Paul had perfect eyesight, his signature would have been much larger when compared to the professional script of an actual scribe. Verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world." Here, Paul reflects a little bit on the motivations and emotions that lie beneath what people actually say and believe. He says that people who preach circumcision, that is, who preach a version of Christianity that is really more Jewish than Christian, they do that because they fear persecution. Their fear is affecting their faith. Their emotions are overriding their brains, Paul says. They don't actually believe that people can obey their way into God's good graces. There's no support for that in the scripture. And there's no support for that in their own experiences. They know for a fact that they themselves aren't capable of doing that. But they preach it anyway. Because that way they avoid persecution from the world. But the gospel will never win praise from the world. The gospel will always be hated by the world. So this idea that you can somehow avoid this, somehow shave off a few sharp edges and win the praise of the world. That's a fool's errand. That's a fearful fool's errand. Far be it from me to boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He adds a bit of a tricky phrase here. He says, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What does he mean by that? Luther, again, is very helpful here. He explains This is Paul's manner of speaking. The world is crucified to me. That is, I judge the world to be damned. And I am crucified to the world. That is, the world again judges me to be damned. (laughs) Thus we crucify and condemn one another. Close quote. Luther says, 
we aren't saying and believing parallel things here. The gospel isn't even close to the religion of the natural man. This isn't a little canyon that can be bridged over. We're on different planets. The world is trusting in itself, but we are trusting in Christ. Therefore, Paul says, there's nothing we can do. No little ritual, no tiny piece of flesh we can snip off that will mollify the essential hostility between the gospel and the mindset and the, the faith and the religion, you might say, of the world. Verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. The only thing that matters is being born again. So we talk about that. No matter the cost we must pay, and no matter the persecution we must suffer. Verse 16, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. If you're born again, if you're trusting in the life and death of Jesus Christ for your salvation, if you're filled with the Spirit of God, then let us be at peace. Let us be kind and merciful to one another and to all the Israel of God. That phrase, the Israel of God, simply means all those who are now in covenant relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, slave, free, male, female, whatever, whomever, if you are in Christ, then you're in covenant with God. Grace, mercy, and peace be upon you all. Verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul says here, if you need to see marks in the flesh to know who belongs, make sure you're looking in the right place. Look on their backs. If you see people who are suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you see people standing firm under the lash of the world, you're seeing brothers and sisters. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Amen. And thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another series of Into the Word. If you are new to the Into the Word podcast and interested in catching up on some previously released series, be sure to visit ca.thegospelcoalitioncanada.org for archived material. Click the podcast tab and you should be able to find over 175 previous episodes. God willing, our next new series will cover the book of James, the perfect counterpart to our work here in Galatians. Until then, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you.